The legal views and content expressed on the following program are provided solely for informational and entertainment purposes. They do not constitute or contain legal advice. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the show. You are listening to the Break the Business Podcast. I'm Ryan Carella, and it is a pleasure to have you here this week. Solo show this week, folks. It is all me in the studio, my dear co-host, my confidant, my aide-de-camp in this podcasting adventure. Dave is out of town. He's in L.A. because it's his birthday And so he's out in L.A., which is like his favorite place in the whole wide world. If you listen to this show, you know that Dave loves to be in L.A. He loves it more than here or anywhere else. So that's where he is because it's his birthday and it's a happy time of year and he wants to be where he's happy. He's like checking out podcasts and museums and stuff. You follow his Twitter feed at MetalDave85. You can see all the cool stuff he's doing in L.A. right now. He's he's having the time of his life. I am enjoying just chronicling his tremendous LA adventure on Twitter. He's just having an awesome time. And if you're listening, buddy, although I'm not sure if you are, because for many of you who listen to this podcast know that Dave does not like to listen to his shows or listen to podcast episodes that he's not on. So he's probably not listening to this, but if you are, buddy, I hope you had a great time in LA. Or if you're listening to this while you're in LA, I hope you're having a good time in LA right now. Um, I will think it's, I'll say this though, it is somewhat questionable that he gets to skip out on doing the podcast just because it's his birthday. I mean, I recorded during the week of my birthday, and, you know, I don't—I think once you hit a certain age, and I'm going to go ahead and call that age nine, you know, just because it's your birthday doesn't mean you can't skip out on your obligations anymore. I'm just going to say that. You know, I was in the office the other day. I was— uh, with one of my clients, and um, I, one of my, one of the employees of one of the companies I work with said, "Oh, hey Ryan, I see your birthday's coming up. Uh, are you coming into work?" And I said, "Of course, I'm coming into work. I'm I'm 30 years old. I'm 31 now, but I was like, yeah, I'm 30 years old. I mean, I didn't know that not coming into work was an option when you're this age. Like, work still has to get done. You know, go to work, do your job. Like, it's a birthday. It's not, you know, it's not something that you know, it's not the birth of your child." You know, maybe maybe that's the birthday that you're allowed to miss work for the birth of something you create. Can we make that the rule? Now, nah, either way, I'm just lashing out. I'm going to say that uh, that's what this is. Look, Dave deserves to have a good time. He works his ass off and I'm just bitter because I like it when he's here. He makes me happy. He makes the listeners happy. He's funny. I'm not the funny one. I'm, you know, Professor dork just talking about music industry stuff and he's the one who cracks the jokes and so without him here i feel like just half of my podcasting energy is just missing so you know i am lashing out at dave because he's not here but i'm sure he'll be back next week and that makes me happy so um in the meantime i hope you're having a good time dave and uh i miss you and i hate you for not being here Uh, if you want to get closer to the podcast i would hope i would plead i would implore you to rate us and review us on sites like iTunes and SoundCloud. Uh, you can also subscribe to the podcast on those platforms. That subscription stuff really helps. Um, you know, the podcast comes up every Sunday, but if you want to get it right when it pops up, and you can make sure you help our download numbers by having it delivered right to your i you know your iTunes podcast app. Just subscribe to the podcast. We would very much appreciate that. We do a great, you know, great show each week. We try to, you know, keep you informed, bring in some of the top folks in the music industry to give you advice as an indie artist. And even if you're not a musician, um, you know, the entertainment law stuff we talk about is important for everybody. We do talk about a lot of pop culture and, you know, I like to think we we, we have fun. We, we create a good product for you. So subscribe to us. Uh, you can contact the podcast at breakthebusiness at gmail.com. So... You know, we we put a lot of work into the topics we talk about each show, but if there's a specific topic that you want us to talk about, if you want to sort of guide the content a bit, we give you the ability to do that by emailing us at breakthebusiness at gmail.com. Let us know what you want to talk about. David and I will talk about it. And that can be either a music industry or DIY artist thing. Uh, you can email us with a topic you want to talk us to talk about there. If it's a pop culture thing that you want us to talk about, uh, put that, break the business, gmail.com. We'll talk about it. If you have any questions for us to answer on the show, if you have any show criticism, which I'm sure is all warranted, 
Uh, you can email us, breakthebusiness at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ryan K-A-I-R. Follow my in absentia co-host Dave at MetalDave85. He is a sneakily good follow. He's funny. He posts good stories. He's got great pictures of him hanging out with bands and you know going to cool concerts. He's a cooler dude than I am. I fully accept that. And he's a good Twitter follow. That's MetalDave at MetalDave85. Uh, he's a cool, cool guy. Our guest this week, brace yourself, all right? Just, just you know, make sure you're in a place where if you immediately jump up out of excitement, you're not going to hit your head on something. You know, make sure there's plenty of room around you to properly celebrate because our guest this week is awesome. Coming up in the next segment, Ariel Hyatt of Cyber PR is joining us. The Ariel Hyatt, that's right. She's an author. She's the founder of Cyber PR. She is a PR new media expert extraordinaire. She's got a ton of experience. She's helped so many DIY artists move their careers forward. And we got her here uh, talking on the podcast in the next segment. It's going to be great. She's so great. She's a dear friend. I adore this person. Ariel Hyatt coming up. If you don't know who she is, I mean, what's wrong with you? But if you don't know who she is, she's the founder of the public relations and social media strategy company, Cyber PR. But the reason why we're having her on this week is that she is now the author of a new book. Uh, the book is called Crowdstart, The Ultimate Guide to a Powerful and Profitable Crowdfunding Campaign. It is available now. So she is basically, Ariel has taken her expertise in the music industry and has focused it in this book on crowdfunding, which if you've listened to this podcast, if you've read my book, you know that crowdfunding is so important to moving your career forward. In this new music industry, uh, where suddenly content creation, content promotion, content distribution is something that's within the reach of all artists, you don't need that intermediary record company anymore to you know, take all your money and own your masters and you know, dominate your life. You can do it all yourself, but it's always nice to have a means to obtain a little bit of capital to get yourself started and fund some of your creative projects. And before crowdfunding came along, that means didn't exist. But now you got platforms like Kickstarter, GoFundMe, Pledge Music that allow you to fund a project or allow your fans to fund your project and you give them rewards and all of a sudden things that you might not have been able to create before, like an album or a new tour or a new music video are now all things you can create. And of course, you now have crowdfunding platforms like Patreon, which are a game changer. We had the CEO of Patreon, Jack Conte, on a few weeks ago, and he talked about how he thinks his platform could change independent music and independent content creation. And I couldn't agree with him more. Patreon allows you, as an artist, to have a constant stream of funding from your fans. Your fans can support you each month or for each project you create. And now all of a sudden, you're not just being funded for every big project, but you're getting a steady stream of income as a DIY artist. That's huge. That's game-changing. Now all of a sudden, your content can pay your rent. It can give you a real standard of living rather than just fund each specific big project you do. So Patreon's huge. Kickstarter's huge. But if you're going to use these platforms, you got to know how to use them effectively. If you just put up a Kickstarter campaign and say, hey, give me money, guess what? You're going to make zero dollars and zero cents. So you need to know the good strategies. You need to know how to build an effective campaign. And more importantly, much more importantly, you need to know how to build a fan base, a tribe that is devoted to you to the extent that when you start one of these campaigns, they're ready to help support you. That is the most important foundational aspect of any crowdfunding campaign. Well, how do I do that, you might ask? Well, you got to stick around for the next segment for that. How's that for a podcasting tease? Because Arielle Hyatt, in her new book, Crowdstart, The Ultimate Guide to a Powerful and Profitable Crowdfunding Campaign, is going to tell us all about that. She's going to tell us how to build that tribe. And then once you have that tribe, to build an effective crowdfunding campaign to allow your creations to come to life. And, you know, the thing about Arielle is she's not just, you know, giving you secondhand information. Uh, she's got firsthand experience with crowdfunding. The Crowdstart book is actually the product of a successful, very successful crowdfunding campaign that she created. She raised tens of thousands of dollars to get this book created. So she knows a thing or two about crowdfunding. And so her own personal experience, plus her many, 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 many years of experience effectively helping artists like you 
make her a great person that we're going to be able to speak to. Again, that book is CrowdStart, The Ultimate Guide to a Powerful and Profitable Crowdfunding Campaign. It's available wherever books are sold. You can check it out on Amazon, and I strongly recommend that you do. And speaking of Ariel's book, Digital Tour Bus is actually having a contest right now where you can win a signed copy of Ariel's book, CrowdStart, as well as a signed copy of my book. And I don't know which of those two you're more excited about. Um, I know you're, I can already hear you all screaming, Ariel, Ariel, who's this other guy? But hey, we're both good books, all right? So you can win a signed copy of her book and my book with this digital tour bus contest. All you have to do is go to digitaltourbus.com and you can enter for free. And while you're there, you know, check out the Digital Tour Bus website because this is a cool platform. It's got great articles. It's a terrific way, a terrific way, I should say. I don't know what terrific is. A terrific way to reach out with artists, connect with artists, see them on tour. It's a cool platform. So again, new contest, Digital Tour Bus is hosting. Digital Tour Bus. Why am I putting T's at the end of every word? Digital Tour Bus. I did it again. Bus is having a contest. You can win a signed copy of Ariel Hyatt's book, Crowd Start, and my book, Break the Business, Declaring Your Independence and Achieving True Success in the Music Industry. Both signed. Uh, pretty cool thing. And uh, speaking of my book, uh, if you've been following me on Twitter, you know that I have started the recording sessions for my Break the Business audiobook yesterday. Um, and the fact that I've been just mispronouncing words for the last minute would make you think, wow, you're completely incapable of doing an audiobook. But hey, all right, I can do it. It's going to be great. And I've already recorded about a third of the audiobook in a real professional recording studio. All right, this wasn't in my little, you know, cheapo podcasting skeleton crew studio. I wanted to put out a real good audiobook for you, the listeners, and uh, the people who've enjoyed my book. And so I rented out studio time in a real honest to God studio with like the fluffy padded walls and everything. And it's been super fun. You know, it's kind of neat to, you know, put the real professional headphones on and speak in a real spectacular look sounding microphone. And you got the engineer on the other side of the glass, you know, you know, he hits, hits the button. Yeah, that was a good take. Let's do the next take. Um, it's just, it's cool. I feel, I felt like I was a, I felt like I was a musician and I'm not. I mean, if you, you heard me do my ukulele song a few months ago, you know that music, eh, I'm like, you know, slightly below average. But it was cool to feel like a musician by being in a real recording studio. And I'm super excited. I can't wait to get this audio book done. It should be done uh, pretty soon. And then we'll uh, have an, a release date all announced. And I can't wait to share this audio book with you if you're the kind of person who doesn't like to read or you like to hear my voice for whatever reason. We got the audio book for you. That's coming up soon. And it was fun putting it together. But let me say this about the audiobook experience, because I completely underestimated how hard this would be. I figured that recording an audiobook was simply just going into a studio, you know, taking the book, having it on a computer screen, and just reading it. How hard is that? Reading, talking, talking about things that I'm reading. It seems simple on paper. So I figured I would probably, oh, I was like, oh, I'm going to knock out, I'm going to knock out the whole book in a day. How hard can it be? It turns out it's really hard. Recording an audiobook is excruciating. And I had no idea. I just assumed I would read the text and I'd be done. You know, maybe I'd make a mistake every three or four pages and, uh, you know, just move on. I'd, you know, do it again, fix it, and then just, you know, get the book done. But I was making mistakes left and right. I was reading my own damn book and I was making mistakes. On like every paragraph, I would trip over a word or I would slur something and I would make mistakes and not think they were mistakes. And then the engineer would say, hey, you screwed that up. You have to do it again. I'd be like, what are you talking about? And he'd play it back and I would sound, you know, I'd listen to it. I'm like, wow, I sound like I'm drunk there. All right, I guess we have to do that again. And it was every paragraph. Sometimes in a paragraph, I would mess up the same word multiple times. I can't believe how hard it is to record an audiobook. Good Lord. And I kind of wound up hating myself in the experience for two reasons. One, when you listen to the sound of your own voice for an entire day, you begin to hate the sound of your own voice. So that was one thing. But the other thing was I started to hate myself a year ago, like the year ago, Ryan, that actually wrote this book, because every once in a while, a year ago, Ryan wrote a line in the book or wrote a word in the book that was a hard word for present day Ryan to pronounce when reading the audiobook. An example of this was throughout the book, I use the term 
cross-collateralize frequently. All the time in the book, I use that term cross-collateralize because it's an important term in record deals, and the book is all about explaining the pitfalls of record deals. So the term cross-collateralize appears every time in, or appears frequently in that book. And every time I saw that word, I always screwed it up when I was doing the audiobook narration. It just, you know, I would just read something like, and labels love to cross collateralize. Just, oh, and then I'd have to go back and do it again. And labels always love to cross. I just, I could not, and I would just mess up that same word over and over and over again. And, and so, yes, it was a, it was an exciting experience because it was cool to be in a real honest to God recording studio and to work with a great engineer. Uh, but, oh my God, I just hated, you know, having, I just hated that. I, I was having trouble speaking the English language because it turns out that reading an audiobook or narrating an audiobook much harder than I would have expected. Anyway, uh, that's enough of uh, hating myself right now. Let's get into some music industry news because, oh my goodness gracious, there has been some crazy social media news this week. It's had a huge impact on indie artists. But before I talk about what that news is specifically, I want to give some surrounding context that I think is interesting for this particular news. So in the last few weeks, we've done a few interviews on this podcast in which we were curiously hearing different guests give the same thoughts about promoting yourself as a DIY artist. And basically, this was the message that we kept hearing over and over from the same from, from each of our guests that we've had on in the past. And that message was that the centerpiece of any promotional effort you do as a DIY artist in your music career has to be your website and building an email list. You can, you can do other things. You can use social media, and you should use social media, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat. Those things are important, and you shouldn't abandon them, but you don't want to use them as your base of operations. Your base of operations has to be your website and building an email list. And many of you younger artists out there, you might bristle at that because I sound like your grandfather. You're like, oh, you got to have a nice website and email list. Like, what, email list? You know, whatever. I can I can tweet out my millions of followers in a one millionth of a second on Twitter. Why would I need to write a newsletter? My God, what, what am I, a thousand years old? But we kept hearing this advice from many of our guests that we've had on the show. And you should use social media to promote your content. But ultimately, the most important platforms for yourself, website, email list. We were hearing this over and over, and here's some examples. So a few weeks ago, we had Dave Cool, the director of artist and industry outreach at Banzoogle, also the owner of the coolest name in the music business. And he said this. But you really need the place that you own online because, you know, if you're old enough to remember MySpace, which I am, um, you know, it, it, a lot of bands built up a fan base on there and then it seemingly disappeared overnight and there was no copy, you know, fa MySpace fans to Facebook. So you had to start over. With your website, you own that little slice of the internet. If you collect their email, address, email addresses and add them to your mailing list, you can keep in touch with those fans for life. So the website and mailing list, we really see it as sort of your hub. Um, these are properties that you own. So there you have it. While the idea of websites and mailing lists seem old-fashioned, what Dave Cool reminds us of is that you gotta embrace these platforms because all of these other social media platforms, MySpace, they could be gone tomorrow, as, as would happen with MySpace. And, and so you always need to have something that you own, something that's permanent, that's going to be your hub, your base of operations, so that you don't have to worry about those things going away because your material is centered on a platform that you don't control. Um, we heard this sentiment yet again about four weeks ago when we had music marketing and digital strategy consultant Michael Brandvold, who said pretty much the same thing. If you're relying on somebody else's world to live in, Facebook, or the perfect example is MySpace, mm -hmm. um, at any time you could wake up and realize that that community you put all of your work into is dead, is gone, has changed, has deleted your profiles. Maybe they decide to start selling you your profile back. I mean, anything could happen. You don't control what happens on a social network. You don't own your profile. You don't own your fans. You don't own any of that. So Michael Brandvold's giving you the straight talk there. Even if you have millions of fans on Facebook or Twitter, 
as long as those fans are only centered on that social media page as opposed to on your website or you know having their email addresses, then those fans aren't really yours. They belong to the other social media platform, and all of those fans, which are critical to your success, are at the whim of that social media platform. And if anything happens to that platform, your fans are gone, just like that. And then two weeks ago, we heard this sentiment again from Music Marketing Manifesto founder John Ojaka, who said this. These platforms change. If you've been around for any amount of time, then you'd remember the MySpace crash. Every musician on earth was relying on MySpace to build their audiences, and a few were successful with it. Uh, and then the platform completely fell apart, and all, so did all the careers that were relying uh, on the platform. And the same could happen to Facebook. Even if the platform doesn't go away, they can easily change their terms of service, and then suddenly you can't reach the people that you've been working uh, to 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 uh, gather there on the platform. And, and we've already seen that with Facebook's EdgeRank uh, uh, algorithm where they have uh, severely handicapped your uh, messages' ab uh, ability to get in front of your audience if it's coming from a page. And so that's the other danger of relying on social media to be the hub of your music career operations is that you lose control over your message. When you try to reach out to your fans, ultimately, the extent to which your message gets to your fans is going to be interrupted by whatever the algorithms are for whatever social media platform you're talking about. You know, when you send something through your Facebook business page, not all of your fans see it. And if you want more of your fans to see it, you're going to have to pay up. Now, contrast that with an email list. If you have all of your fans' email addresses because you've worked very hard to get those addresses and curate a good email list... There's no intermediary that interrupts the message to your fans. You can email your fans directly. They see your message when they open their email every day or every week or however many times you message them. And there's nothing getting between you and your fans. And that's a huge reason why website and email addresses or email lists, I should say, need to be the center of your music industry operation. And again, I can't emphasize enough, this doesn't mean you ignore social media entirely. Social media is huge. It is an important, important component of any music launch or of your music promotion generally, but it needs to be a support function, not the centerpiece of your music career. But that being said, when I kept hearing this statement over and over from those three interviewees about how you, know, you never know if you're going to lose Facebook tomorrow or you're going to lose some social media page tomorrow, while I did agree with them, I did feel like it was a little doom and gloom. I did kind of say, hey, look, man, you know, you know, these social media pages, you know, there are many reasons why you don't want it to be the center of your promotional campaign, but these pages aren't going anywhere. We're not going to lose these pages. Like, don't don't scare the listeners so much. That was always my feeling. But it turns out that we heard some news this week that made me realize that I was completely wrong. And those interviewees, Dave Cool, John Ojaka, Michael Brandvold, were completely right. And so it's a good thing that I have other guests on the show who tend to be right when I'm wrong, because at least you get some good insight on this show. But it turns out that those interviews wound up being oddly prophetic, considering what happened this week when Twitter announced that it is shutting down Vine. I was flabbergasted. I couldn't believe it. Vine, uh, for those of you who don't know, it is a platform that allows creators to make looping six-second videos. When Vine came out, it exploded. You couldn't escape it. Everybody loved making Vines, uh, whether, uh, you know, you know, even just casual social media users, but also a lot of content creators, artists, musicians, actors, actresses, dancers. Everybody liked making these little six-second videos. And musicians in particular were able to create music careers solely out of Vine. Uh, many of these musicians would make these little six-second songs and get millions of followers. In fact, the, the greatest example I can think of of a Vine user as a musician becoming a star is someone like uh, Ruth B. So with Ruth B., this is a, a, a fantastic singer, actually, one of my wife's favorite singers. She loves Ruth B., um, she sang a six-second loop of this song that she eventually created called Lost Boy, uh, based on Peter Pan. And, you know, she made the little six-second loop of the song, and all of her Vine followers said, oh my god, this is amazing, you need to make this a full song. 
Smash cut to today. This song's all over the radio now. She's a, you know becoming a huge star, and it all started with Vine. And so there are many artists who owe their music career to Vine and have made it the center of their music operations. I, I've seen many artists who have millions of, of Vine followers but have pretty much no website or a threadbare website, don't use any kind of email list or anything like that. Basically, the whole game is Vine for them. And that's a problem for them because now Vine is on its way out. Its mobile app has been shut down. So artists, musicians who have had all of their fans on Vine and have used it as a centerpiece in their music operations, those fans are poof, gone. If they, uh, Unless they were able to connect those Vine fans to an actual real good website and have gotten their email addresses of those fans for a mailing list, but I'm guessing most of those Vine stars didn't. But now those fans are gone. And Vine creators are back to square one. So, you know, as much as we perhaps thought when those, you know, three people I interviewed, when they said, you know, you never know when Facebook is going to, you know, go away. As much as we might have wanted to say a week ago, come on, you know, nothing's going to happen to one of these kind of platforms. Now we're seeing it. Vine was a huge social media platform, a content platform that many artists have used as the centerpiece of their music career. And it's been just taken away. You know, your fans are gone. Your connection to your fans is gone. So heed this lesson. You should totally use social media platforms. You should use Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat. Absolutely. But it should always come back to your website and your mailing list. If you don't have a good website, if you are not building a mailing list, sending out newsletters and otherwise communicating with your fans via email, hey, there's no time like the present to get started. Um, now's the time to, you know, heed the lesson of the death of vine and, uh, you know, get moving on that mailing list, make a great website and make that the centerpiece of your music career. Ariel Hyatt up next, keep it locked to the break the business podcast. Ryan here from the podcast. Shameless plug time. My new book, Break the Business, Declaring Your Independence and Achieving True Success in the Music Industry is now available in paperback and an ebook. The book talks about how you can be your own boss in your music career and take control of your content creation, promotion, distribution, and fundraising. Get your copy on Amazon by searching Break the Business. It's a nice read for musicians and the people who love them. That's Break the Business, Declaring Your Independence and Achieving True Success in the Music Industry. Thanks very much for your support. Welcome back to the Break the Business Podcast. She is an acclaimed music entrepreneur and founder of the public relations and social media strategy company Cyber PR. She is also the author of the new book Crowdstart, the ultimate guide to a powerful and profitable crowdfunding campaign, which is available now. You can find out more about her work by visiting arielhyatt.com and cyberpr.com. Ladies and gentlemen, Ariel Hyatt is on the Break the Business Podcast. Ariel, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This definitely represents the first time I've ever had a round of applause on a podcast. Kudos. Well, I, I have them very well trained. Like they're like seals. Check this out. And they're gone. <laughs> and they're back. Yeah, they're, they're very respectful, very uh, orderly audience. They're my favorite kind. So, Ariel, here's the thing. When I interview people, I like to start by asking them questions about themselves. Let the audience learn as much as they can before we get into the meat of the discussion. But, you know, you're Ariel Hyatt. You're awesome. Everybody knows you're awesome. Everybody knows who you are. You've helped so many artists move their careers forward. And you've written this book about crowdfunding, which is going to help listeners make some money. And I just kind of want to get into the book so we can help uh, creators fund their project. Does that, does that kind of work for you? That totally works. Love it. All right. Um, first off, out the gate, for the listeners who don't know, what is crowdfunding and what role can it play for musicians in their career? Crowdfunding is going to your community, your colleagues, your friends, your family, your VIPs, your listeners, everyone you can think of, and asking them to fund a dream. How musicians can benefit from it is there's so many different ways. It's almost hard to encapsulate it in one answer, but you have 30 seconds. Okay. You can fund a tour. <laughs> you can fund an album. You can fund a discovery trip where maybe you're going to go and do some songwriting with your band. You can fund whatever next part of your dream you're trying to get to, um, a tour of Europe, whatever it is. Um, and it's basically, in my opinion, one of the most powerful ways 
to make money right now because let's face it, Spotify is not paying you. Your incredible huge amount of checks that you're getting from SoundExchange is not paying you. <laughs> you know, and this is not to have a conversation about the weird state of how artists are getting paid, um, although that's a whole other podcast times 10. But really, it is a fabulous way of engaging your community and getting paid. Yeah, it's really bridging you know, the last kind of gap in the music industry for artists because creating music's cheaper than it's ever been, promoting it, distributing it, all cheaper than they've ever been. But, you know, you still need a little bit of capital to kind of bridge some of these projects to, to make them happen. And crowdfunding can really play that role for you. And so, you know, a book like yours, which really walks artists through the step-by-step -step process is so huge. I want to start off with the introduction of your book, which might be one of the best titled introductions I've ever seen. It grabbed me right away. It was how losing my house in a fire and being on Oprah taught me everything I needed to know about crowdfunding. That's a title. It's in, it's in stark contrast to my book's introduction title, which is introduction. <laughs> and, but, you know, it inspires curiosity. Uh, it, ha it warrants asking, how did losing a hou your house in a fire and being on Oprah teach you everything you needed to know about crowdfunding? Okay, so it's it's weird because those are two sort of pivotal pivotal. That's not a word. Pivotal moments in my I'll life. Um, for for those of you listening, it is seven p.m. Both Ryan and I have worked all day, and here we are recording. Okay, um, so two pivotal again. I did it. Two pivotal things. Woo! Wow. And I have not had any alcohol, people. None. Um, so I lost my house in a fire and what happened after the fire was put out was I had a mess and I was in shock and a lot of things were gone, things that, you know, material things. Um, and I reached out to my community. I live in New York City and so I don't own a car. So I emailed a few of my friends that own cars and said, can you help me? I need to get the last of my things out of this burned remnant of a shell of an apartment. And I emailed friends because I lived alone and I had, for example, all my dishes and flatware covered in soot from the fire. So I needed people to come and help. And I emailed people a list of things on Amazon because I was grossly underinsured and I had lost tons of things that were so precious books. And anyway, so I reached out to my community and my house went down before, um, before Facebook was really a thing. So it was done one by one hand to hand. There wasn't even text messaging. So I sent out this email and here's the lesson. The lesson I got was my best friends and the people that I thought were going to come to my rescue and be the ones that would show up first did not. Mm -hmm. Not all, but some. And I remember this really weird conversation I had with, it was my best girlfriend. It was the night of the fire. I was, we were at my parents' apartment. I was in shock and I realized I had to go back to my building and get my whatever clothing was left in the closets that didn't get affected. And I had to wash it all because the smell of the smoke was coming. And I said, can you come with me to the laundry and help me clean my clothes? And she said, I don't do laundry. <laughs> and so there I was alone at the laundry doing it. Anyway, that was one example of a friend that didn't show up. The example of friends that did show up was amazing. People that I hadn't heard from in years um, showed up. And the example I talk about in the book was a, a friend from college, I hadn't seen him in 15 years, came to my door with gloves and bleach and a mask and came in my house and spent the whole day with me cleaning my dishes, packing up my things. And that type of thing happened over and over in the aftermath of, of the fire. People sent me books on Amazon. Friends of friends sent me things. Um, it was just really amazing. And so that is very much like what will happen to you in your crowdfunding campaign. You think that you have these best friends who are going to come and be big donors. And for whatever reason, they might not be. But the beauty of a crowdfunding campaign is 
people that you didn't expect will show up and come out of the woodwork and they might give way more than you ever could have expected. So that's the 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 house on fire side of it. The Oprah side of it, and for any of you who've known me for a long time, I've shared the Oprah story um, often because it's a really strong paradigm for when you are in control of your communications with your community, things that happen to you that seem huge at the time, like me being on Oprah, are not as huge as they could be. So what I mean by that is I went on the Oprah Winfrey show. It was not a great experience. Um, As the media tends to do, I thought I was going on to talk about generational differences in the workplace. What it ended up being was a very painful bearing of a very, very hard story in my family, which um, I don't need to go into here, but basically it was a bait and switch. And I had been a traditional publicist for many years and I understood how the media worked, but I didn't quite see what being on Oprah would actually do. I didn't see it coming. So after that negative experience happened, I thought, okay, what's the lesson here? And the lesson was that in the years that followed, as I started building my own community and my own crowd and blogging and tweeting and doing all the things that we all do to build our own communities and crowds, and the more people I connected with, the more I realized it didn't matter. People can put you on television and say horrible things about you, or you can have a really bad day in the media, and it won't matter if you have control of how you put your messaging out. So those two things really, really hit home for me as I was crowdfunding because these, these images kept coming up like, okay, even though I don't know if this crowdfunding campaign is going to succeed at a hundred percent, because that's pretty much how it goes until you, you do it. I did know that there was some real beauty in the connectivity of my crowd. And so that is how Oprah and my house burning down in a fire taught me everything I needed to know about crowdfunding. Those are two excellent stories about overcoming adversity. My only concern is that I feel like putting Oprah on blast is really going to hurt your chances of getting crowd started into the book club. Yeah, probably is. <laughs> I mean, but um, still a great read nonetheless. I, you know what? I don't think you you need her help, frankly. And <laughs> You know, and you know what? Everybody says nice things about Oprah. I think Oprah needs at least one story out there of her, you know, treating somebody badly. So, you know, she didn't treat me badly. It was just really a lesson of, I mean, I think any artist that I've ever represented or client in the PR world, if they've had a negative experience, you know, an article got published where they took something out of context or, you know, they were really trying to convey a story and another piece of the story came out you know, you get interviewed for three hours and sometimes two minutes get put on TV. You know, it's, it's dramatic what happens to create good news. And so that was the real lesson. Um, not really. I mean, I think Oprah's wonderful and I love what she's done for, for humanity in general and for, for people. Um, so I don't, it's not about dissing her, but it's, (laughs) it's really about the power of, of the media and, how even the most innocent thing, and we see this all the time, right? I mean, surf the internet, you'll see these crazy headlines, so-and-so said this, you know, and it's like, well, did they really say that? You know, today I w- walked by the newsstand and um, Angelina and, and, and well, Brangelina are breaking up and the, the cover of Us, Us Weekly, it, you know, screaming inside Brad's crumbling world. It's like, you know, nobody went inside Brad's crumbling world. There's no way. That's just a headline designed to sell magazines. I I saw one recently in Billboard in which they talked about Bruno Mars working with Adele. And the headline read something like, you know, Bruno Mars says Adele is you know impossible to work with and a total diva. And when you read the article, instead, what Bruno Mars said is, you know, she's this amazing person who commands respect in her room and demands excellence. And it was just like the ultimate clickbaity headline because they wanted you to you know, look at the article and nobody was going to read it if it was just Bruno Mars saying nice things about Adele. Right. There you go. So yeah. case in point right there. And so, you know, that was 
that was um that that's not yeah exactly there you go that's <laughs> there you go that's how it's all positioned these days you know i'm kind of allergic to media mainstream media because it's so charged with with that kind of rhetoric and it's it's not helpful for anyone no. and it, it's interesting how even in your book a lot of these mainstream musicians will use the direct messaging of crowdfunding uh, to achieve success um, and not have their story distorted uh, in one part of your book you chronicle the crowdfunding activities of two of my favorite musicians uh, amanda palmer and bjork and your book talks about how one of these artists had a massive success in the area of crowdfunding and one of them had a little bit more trouble getting their campaign off the ground what accounted for their differences in success and what lessons can be learned from those stories so obviously we all know about amanda palmer and what she did and you know the record-breaking 1.3 million dollar campaign which she was going for a hundred thousand and it just was such an attestation to her amazing ability to communicate, really incredible. Um, and so we know about that. There is a lesser known crowdfunding campaign that happened um, years ago now. And I remember seeing it and I remember being really horrified by it. It was Bjork and she was trying to raise a very large sum of money for, it was like a visual, it was a movie visual kind of, um, computer. It was, um, for bi around biophilia, which was a few years old now. And the lesson was Bjork had never been on social media. Um, not at that point now that's changed, but at that time. And so she was trying to do a crowdfunding campaign without having a crowd. Now, sure enough, she has a crowd. That's silly. If everybody knows who Bjork is world touring artist, you know, household name, certainly, but didn't have a newsletter list, didn't have a Twitter, didn't have any of the things that Amanda Palmer had, and therefore did not have command of her crowd. So here comes Bjork. She wanted to raise a lot of money for this very interesting project. And I watched that campaign completely fail. Now, why did it fail? Well, it failed A, she was a little bit on the early adopter side, so people didn't really even know what crowdfunding was. So that definitely worked to her disadvantage. But she didn't have what any of us would need to succeed in crowdfunding, which is a voice, a platform to go out to and say, hey, I'm doing this. Um, and it was a colossal failure, and um, she did not fund the project. And so I talk about that, about how even if you think everybody knows who you are, or everybody's paying attention, um, crowdfunding does not work without an engaged crowd. Yeah, and that's, yeah. that's just the way it is. And I could make an it's oh so quiet joke about Bjork's crowdfunding <laughs> campaign, but I'm better than that. <laughs> And you know she's she's such a terrific artist, and I'm and you know and, and we don't we don't go right to the lowest common denominator for humor around here. Um, but I would like to talk more about this building of fan bases. Uh, you know, to learn from Bjork's example, how can artists build not just a base of fans, but the right kind of fans, and build the right kind of relationship with fans to make a crowdfunding campaign successful? Are there certain techniques, platforms that are essential to this process? It goes back to the oldest story in the world, which is, and the oldest story in the conversation of social media, which is literally engage, engagement. If you are coming at social media and your marketing from a place where you're a one way yelling into the void, clearly that's not a two way conversation. You have to care as much about your fans as they care about you. You have to give to get. Um, of course, you have to be extraordinary in your art. There is no one magic bullet platform, although I will say that if you do not have a newsletter, you are really not going to be fabulously crowdfunding. So newsletter would be the, the tool that I would give honorable mention here. But you need to be everywhere and you need to be using social media. And that means Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, for those of us who've got the hang of it and you have a younger audience, Snapchat, um, and whatever else works for you. If video works for you, then YouTube. 
All of that needs to feed, of course, into your website and into your newsletter. You want to be capturing email addresses because when it comes to launch your crowdfunding campaign, you cannot show up out of nowhere and be like, hey, everybody, I want $20,000. You need to build the momentum, build the conversation, build the trust. And then when you go to start your campaign and ask, you already have your heart and your hands and your arms around your community. And they're going to be there rooting for her, just like Amanda Palmer had. So in, in using social media and building this kind of engagement and building fans, uh, you, uh, I, I, in your book, you talk about the uh, cyber PR social media pyramid in a way that you can craft engagement and strengthen your social media presence. Uh, can you tell the folks a bit about that? Sure. So the, the pyramid is something I created several years ago, and it still works. Um, it talks about how often you should use certain types of media and how often you should be self-promotional versus um, just sharing social goodness versus how much you should be shining a light on others, whether that's reposting or retweeting or mentioning or tagging or, you know, so it talks about the science um, and you want to follow um, the 70, 30, 10 rule or 70, 70, 20, 10, right? 70% great content, interesting content, things that are funny, things that you own. You don't just want to be sharing other people's stuff. You want to create your own 20% of the time, shine a light on others. Um, whether or not you're tagging or mentioning or reviewing or chatting to or talking about or getting involved with hashtags, you definitely want to do that. And then 10% of the time, you can, just like your fats and sweets and oils, just like in the old school pyramid of how to eat, that's the self-promotion category. And that's when you should be um, sparing. Of course, when you're in the middle of crowdfunding, that will probably... Um, you'll be a little bit more aggressive with your promotional and your marketing stuff. But that's a good pyramid to follow so that you're not so that you're keeping balanced with with what you're doing. So I think a lot of artists would be surprised to hear that the self-promotion bit of this of the pyramid is just the very tippy top, only 10% as you say. Uh, what what do you say to the artists who are, who are saying, "Hey, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook to let people know who I am. Why wouldn't that be a centerpiece of of me on social media?" And it it sh it can be a centerpiece on social media. Um but you don't own Facebook, right? So anything could happen at any day. They can, I mean, and it, and it has happened. We've seen it now over and over. Facebook's so annoying. They change the rules just when you think you understand how to get engagement and get people talking and seeing your stuff. They change the rules again, and then you get no engagement. Just when you figure out, oh, I'll invite everyone to an event, and that's a great way to be seen. They limit the events, invites, and obviously, it is a publicly traded multi-billion dollar generating business. Their goal is to make money, not to help you promote yourself for free. So, and you have to be quite savvy. It's, it's not easy to be effective on Facebook as a musician. So you have to learn that those tools and use them. Of course, you don't want to not be there, but again, you don't own it. They could change the rules again and again and again. They could shut your page off. They could take your brand away from you. I mean, crazy stuff happens all the time. So you want to make sure that you've got your own brand, your own website, your own newsletter. And of course, use social media to feed all those channels. But it's all got to start from home. Well, it, it actually, I mean, you know, people say this kind of stuff never happens. But think about what just happened recently with uh, the announcement that Vine's going to be shut down. I know. And all the people who like built their presence on Vine are scrambling. Of course, of course they are. And it's just so shocking. It's like this platform that you think is here to stay. I mean, there's 10, you know, remember Meerkat? <laughs> that was that was not that long ago. Everyone's <laughs> flipping out about how awesome it was. You know, so things change and they change quickly. MySpace, Friendster, you know, all these things where we came up, they're they're not they're not around anymore. Sure. Um, so, uh, getting, getting back to the book, getting back to crowdfunding, helping people, uh, fund their art, their creative ambitions. Uh, your book talks about the importance of creating a strong video for your crowdfunding campaign. Uh, you specifically note, I think that if I can get the statistic right, that campaigns with pitch videos raise 122% more than campaigns that don't have these videos. Uh, 
So do you have any tips on how you can create a strong video for your crowdfunding campaign? What should be in there? What shouldn't be in there? You want to have a video that gets to the point. You, you want to do something interesting. It's, it can be funny. It can be um, dark. It can be, you know, film noir, whatever. It has to have something that's captivating and interesting. Just sitting there and saying, hi, everybody, give me money. Um, not interesting. You want to keep it short. I would say if you can do less than two minutes, that's brilliant. Um, you want to make sure that you're also being very clear in what you're asking for. And this is really confronting. And I remember when I was filming my video, I was not only not clear in what I was asking for, I literally was so scared. I was shaking. Um, and I think even maybe almost crying from, from, Oh, I'm asking for money and this feels so awkward. And so, um, you want to make sure that you've got a script. It's got a beginning, a middle, and end. You want to make sure that you're asking. I'm actually asking you to give me money. Don't beat around that bush and be like, well, I don't like asking for money. I'm a starving artist or making up whatever story about how you're not going to ask and make it look cool. Your campaign video is not supposed to make you look cool. It's supposed to make you <laughs> create a serious ask to your fans and your community to fund your next project dream. And you want to be clear about that ask. And of course you can have fun with it. Um, and I, I do mention quite a few videos that are, that are really fun, um, that you can watch some examples, but, but it's gotta be short, sweet and concise. Well, this is something I don't want to lose sight of in your answer is you've actually put this, you know, the things you write about in your book to use because your book is actually the product of a successful crowdfunding campaign. So it's sort of like a hair club for men thing that you're also a client that you know, you, 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 you've used your own results is good. And I actually have something to tell you about the hair club for men. Okay. One of my first jobs ever when I was in high school was actually working for the hair club for men. Really? Uh-huh. Wow. I, it's this is little known little known fact. This is actually the only time I've ever shared this. My mother had a very dear friend and he was actually I don't know if he was the CEO or whatever. He worked at the hair club for men. And this was back in the 80s and they were running all these commercials which you just referred to hilarious and they had a huge problem. Their huge problem was Mean people were were signing their friends up for the hair club for men, <laughs> right? Okay. And so they had this mailing list, and this was back in the day. This was when they were literally sending out postcards. This was way before there was an internet. There was no laptop. There was no editing anything. There was no putting it in a CSV file and deleting. And so he came over for dinner one night and he said, Hey kid, you want to earn some money? And I was like, you know, 15. And of course I did. And he paid me, I think it was five bucks an hour. And I went through literally a computer printout of all of the names of the men that had been signed up for the hair club for men. And I had to cross out all the duplicates and all the ones that were clearly spam. Like their, if their names were like, Harry McHairster or, or, you know, I had to, anyway, yes, that was my first job, Hair Club for Men. And um, I am not just a member of the Hair Club for uh, crowdfunding. I, I actually um, did it all. So, so there you go. And that's true. Crowdstart is, is a result of myself putting myself through the agony and pain of a crowdfunding campaign. Well, you, but you, you just broke news on this podcast. This is, I did. Yeah, this is something that's never been said on, on, you know, you're not going to find this on Hypebot people. You're not going to find this on, you know, uh, DIY musician. This is uh, exclusive, a PR professional extraordinaire. Arielle Hyatt worked for the hair club for men uh, to start her career. Um, that's uh, tremendous. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So um, you talked about the I'm sorry, I'm going to need a second to recover here. <laughs> Um, this is just, I, I'm, I'm just trying to like, sort of imagine, you know, Ariel Hyatt with her style and everything, just like, you know, walking amongst like all these people with, you know, you know, rugs on their heads and just the contrast is delicious to me. Right. So your book outlines, uh, many of the different crowdfunding companies that are available. Uh, can you, 
So for, for an artist who might be interested in crowdfunding but doesn't really know what platform to choose, can you give some uh, advice on you know how to sort of pick which one might be right for a particular artist? Sure. I'd like to talk about three, and I'll go, I'll go through them quite fast. Um, first one, obviously, the Blue Trip one that everybody knows, Kickstarter. Um, Kickstarter is an all-or-nothing platform. That means if you want $10,000 and you launch a campaign on Kickstarter um, – and you don't get 10,000, you get 7,000 or 6,000 or 8,000, you don't get to keep all your money. So all or nothing. If you're the gung-ho, go for it kind of person, and you know that you have a project that you need a certain amount of money for, and you don't want to get anything less than that, I highly recommend Kickstarter. Indiegogo is the next one that I want to talk about. Um, wonderful platform. They're all wonderful. They all have great support and tips, and there's really great reasons to use all of them. I don't prefer one over the other. Something to know about Indiegogo, you can do a partial raise. So if you're looking for 10 and you get six or seven, they allow you to keep part of your money. I am of the mindset that if you're going to go through the exercise, the brutal exercise of asking everyone in the world for money and you don't hit your goal for whatever reason, you should be able to keep a partial raise. I'm sure you could figure out what to do if you wanted seven and you got four, you could probably figure out what to do with $4,000. So I highly recommend um, Indiegogo for that reason. The other wonderful thing about Indiegogo is if you have a project and you want to donate some of the money to a charity or you want part of it to go to a nonprofit, Indiegogo actually allows you a nonprofit a 501c3 status for your project if you qualify. So if you wanted to help, you know, use some of the money to help build a school in Africa or to help with charity water or to save animals or whatever your thing is and you want to be charitable, Indiegogo can help you. Well, it works, well, it works really, out really well. It's pretty cool. The third one and the one that I love for musicians and I love it for so many reasons, mostly because Benji, the founder of Pledge Music, is a man who is a kindred spirit and has spent so much of his life force in helping artists raise money it's pledge music and pledge music is cool for many reasons. Reason number one, it's run and founded by a musician. A lot of wonderful people who've been in and around the music industry who really understand us work there. You, you will get someone assigned to you. You can get them on the phone. They will coach you through what to do. They take a little bit more of a percentage. This is the reason why. Um, and the thing I really love about Pledge, which I think takes the ickiness factor out of it for a lot of artists, is you don't have to tell how much money you want to raise. So your fans will not know if you're going for $500 or $50,000, um, and they will help you come up with the right number that's good for you. So they'll actually look at your mailing list, look at your socials, and help you determine what the right amount to ask for is if you're not clear on how to do that. So it's a nice, uh, it, there's a pro and a con to that, I suppose, because on one hand, you know, you, you, you can reduce the ick factor of, you know, having everybody see you, what your scoreboard is. But on the other hand, you know, that scoreboard can be a, a motivator uh, and, and a driver in your campaign. It can be something that you can tell your fans, oh, I'm 80% there, or, you know, look at that number, go up, help me donate. Um, and so you kind of have to balance that, I suppose, with... Uh, with that platform. Absolutely true. Yeah. Um, so I, I want to close with this question, uh, in chapter 17 of your book, uh, and I think this is a nice way to kind of wrap everything up. You talk about dealing with the fears and the doubts that inevitably emerge when doing a crowdfunding, uh, project. We talked about the ick factor a little, uh, in the previous question. Uh, you specifically talk about this voice inside every creator's head, uh, that you dub little nasty, Filling the creator's head with doubt, how does one deal with Little Nasty and keep it from derailing your campaign? Oh, oh boy. So this was the part of the campaign for all of my clients that I've ever coached and for me that is the part that they don't really talk to you about when you go and research, like, how am I going to do this? And you find great articles online. So that's the voice that is your... your um, your darkest day voice, the one that goes, you're not really that talented. Uh, you don't really deserve this money. Uh, who the heck do you think you are trying to ask everyone for this 
for women, it could sound something like this. You're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You're not pretty enough. You're not popular enough. Um, anyway, the voice comes and it comes all guns blazing at you pretty much right after your campaign starts and the initial influx of money comes in and then it starts getting quiet and you think, this is it. I've just made an ass of myself. Everybody hates me. Nobody's going to give me money. And that's when Little Nasty starts chiming in. Yeah, you idiot. That voice. Um, (laughs) And boy, when I did my crowdfunding campaign, that voice was screaming at me, literally keeping me up at night. I was like, wow, I might have had X amount of thousands of people signed up to my mailing list and reading my blogs and telling me they like my stuff, but clearly it's not true because there's no money coming in. Oh my God. So Little Nasty needs an antidote. And the antidote is and I talk about this in the book, you need to build a team around you when you're going to crowdfund. You cannot and should not do it all on your own. That's step one. I talk about having some mantras. Um, And I know for those of you that are rolling your eyes, that sounds very woo-woo. A mantra is simply a positive thing that you tell yourself. Um, We spend most of our time in our heads in a negative zone, saying negative things, thinking negative things, turn on the news, it'll fill your head even more with negative things, go surf the internet, negative things, Facebook, it's election time, totally negative things. So there we go, we're filling our heads with crap all day. A mantra is something that shuts down the crap. I am valuable, I create great music, I have something I wanna share with the world, my project is going to help change people, whatever it is, And you have to come up with some really strong ones to shut Little Nasty up because Little Nasty will be the thing that can stop your campaign completely. And you need to put the pedal to the metal for all 30 days or however long you decide to crowdfund for. And you got to really focus on it. And there's a lot of Little Nasty that will come up. And it might not just be your voice. It could be your someone you're married to or related to, or someone in your band who's just, you know, not really into the fact that you're crowdfunding and they're embarrassed or something. So, you know, my own mother, I talk about, and this will be the final moment. My own mother sat me down when I launched my campaign and said, you're really embarrassing the family. Why did she said, why didn't you just ask me for your wedding fund? I would have given it to you. And I thought, no, because my wedding fund is actually for my wedding, not for crowdfunding. <laughs> that was but, like that was like a double attack there. Was, but you know, she was really nervous. I was asking for fifty thousand dollars, and she, you know, she's an older woman. She didn't really understand that I had twenty five thousand people on my mailing list. Sure. And was, you know. Anyway, but this is not an unusual story. I I did a, a coaching client, and her mother said the same thing to her: like, you're embarrassing us. And um, she raised $85,000, so she totally kicked ass. But, you know, these moments happen where, you know, it, it doesn't look good to ask for money. It's dirty. We're not supposed to do that. We're supposed to somehow, you know, make music and be rich. Ha, ha, ha. I mean, it's ridiculous. So um, that's another side. That's the other part of the dark side. And and so Little Nasty can be fed by the people that we love the most. I love my mother. She didn't mean that. I mean, she really was trying to be helpful. She thought, oh my gosh, do you, do you need this money? Cause you know, I could come up with it if you needed it. So, um, these interesting things do and will happen when you crowdfund. Man, uh, I, I feel like there's a merchandising opportunity here. Cause I imagine when you close your eyes, Ariel, you sort of imagine what little nasty looks like. Like we can make little nasty plush toys and just sell them to all these people who are, who are crowdfunding. And oh, there's something there, I'm telling you. <laughs> Perfect. And that's like, oh, so. And, and and let me say this with respect to crowdfunding, because, you know, it is a story I also hear with many artists I work with, Ariel, who uh, who will get sat down by their, their mothers or their friends or their bandmates. And I think what can overcome that to some extent is we need to get over the stigma of crowdfunding as being just, you know, 21st century panhandling. This isn't begging for money. This is, there's a transaction happening here. In many crowdfunding campaigns, there are rewards that go to the fans who support your project. It's you know they're getting something for their money, and so you know if we can, and I think the more that we can kind of get our music culture and artists to overcome that stigma, we can see this for what it is, which is you know likely going to be the tool that will help you know most musicians in the new industry 
you know, fund their projects going forward. I agree. And, wow. and the halo effect of, of this whole thing, which really should, should not be minimized is all of a sudden there's all these people who have wanted to give you more and you've only offered them, you know, a t-shirt or a hat or a, a concert ticket or, you know, a 99 cent download, which no one wants to buy PS cause we all have Spotify. <laughs> you, know, you really, really are inviting them along for a journey. And it's very cool what happens when people take you up on it. Yes, indeed. Um, before we let you go, and I know I said that was the last question, I've lied to you. Um, I got, I mean, because I have you here on the line, and you know, you know, it's, it's not every day you get to talk to somebody like you, and so I would uh, be doing my listeners a disservice if I didn't close with this question, which is, um, do you have any final tips? They don't even have to be crowdfunding tips, but just any any last tip that you want to share with the indie artist listeners out there to help them move their careers forward. I'm sure they'd love to hear from you. On the same note that we're just talking about, if you're listening to this podcast and you're a regular here on Break the Business, you already probably are way ahead of your colleague artists. It is really, really easy to go to a dark space right now in the music business and make Spotify wrong and make that, you know, radio promoter wrong that maybe didn't do what they said or, or you know, that idiot manager, whatever. It's really, really hard to get ahead. It is about finding your path, fill your head with positive, good information, educate yourself, try to not go there. You're stay on your path. Keep creating. I went to see Miguel two nights ago. I saw Sia and Miguel opened and he was so amazing and so brilliant. And he said to the audience, they told me I would never make it. They told me because I was, you know, I'm half black and half Mexican and I make this music that wasn't commercially appealing, that I didn't stand a chance. And he said, just keep making your art. The people that will find you will find you eventually. And I thought it was just such a beautiful thing to hear from an artist. And and boy, was is he a great artist. So I'll leave you with that. I love it. The book is CrowdStart, The Ultimate Guide to a Powerful and Profitable Crowdfunding Campaign. It's available now. Ariel, thank you so much for joining us. Please don't be a stranger. We'd love to have you on again real soon. Pleasure was mine. Thank you. All right. That was Ariel Hyatt, everybody. What a treat. She's so knowledgeable. She's one of my favorite people because she helps so many artists just like you listeners move their careers forward. Be sure to get a copy of her new book, CrowdStart, The Ultimate Guide to a Powerful and Profitable Crowdfunding Campaign. And don't forget to go to digitaltourbus.com where you can enter to win a contest to win a signed copy of CrowdStart, as well as my book, Break the Business, Declaring Your Independence and Achieving True Success in the Music Industry. Thank you all so much for listening. I already look forward to seeing you next week on the Break the Business Podcast. 